As we continue in our series of messages for the season of Lent on the theme of the wages of sin, uh, we're going to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Ezekiel and read ver or chapter 18 in its entirety. The title of the sermon is Owning Up to Our Own Sins. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and the needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes, to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all of the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with the garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes, he shall not die for his father's iniquities. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father, 
When the Son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father suffer for the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet, you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness that he has committed, and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live, and he shall not die. And yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore... I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all of your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Church family, the theme of our messages during this season of Lent is focused on the wages of sin. And during our time of reflection and contemplation, part of our journey involves recognizing, first of all, the pervasity of sin as we see it found in the accounts in the Bible. Identifying some specific examples in both the Old Testament and New Testament, but then taking it a step further 
admitting that we also are prone toward sin and disobedience. But then, finally, and above all, celebrating that God has provided a wonderful solution to our sin and disobedience in the person of Jesus Christ and what He has done in granting salvation. As you recall, Pastor Dave began the series a couple of Sundays ago, and he, he looked at the sins of the city of Sodom, that whole society. And in doing so, how the fall of society affected different individuals. Then last week, he used the account of Achan to show how the fall of one individual can affect the broader community. And in both of those messages, highlighting God's disappointment and displeasure with sin and the consequences of turning against God. This morning in, in Ezekiel 18, the people of Israel are instructed through the prophet Ezekiel to own up to their own personal sin. Instead of pointing the finger, instead of making excuses, they are to repent and return to God. Now, we need to understand that the prevailing perspective during this time in ancient history was to view sin as something that was passed down from generation to generation. If you recall, in the New Testament, Jesus and the disciples, as they went out and as they were healing and performing miracles, often people would ask the question, who was it that sinned? Was there someone in the family that caused this person to be in this unfortunate situation or to have this particular disability? One Bible scholar notes, Ezekiel affirms the fact that children will die for their own sins, that they do not inherit the guilt of their parents. This principle of individual responsibility is emphasized in order to guard against collective and indiscriminate punishment. So in pointing out this principle, the principle of individual responsibility, Ezekiel is providing for the people the hope that when they repent of their sins, when they turn to God, God will indeed hear their cry and will give them forgiveness. This morning, as we look a little closer at the passage, we're going to first of all, in verses 1 through 4, look at what that basic principle is. And then for the stretch from verses 5 to 24, we're, we're going to see how this principle is illustrated and elaborated upon. And then finally, in verses 25 to 32, how the people are then called to repentance. So God's Word, through the powerful speaking of the Holy Spirit, and as it's given through the prophet Ezekiel, begins by addressing a proverb, a saying, one that challenges God's justice and fairness. The proverb goes as follows, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. 
probably doesn't make much sense to you and I today. But basically, what it was saying is that the people were suffering unfairly for the sins of the previous generation. So instead of taking individual responsibility for their disobedience, they were seeking to place the blame on the previous generation. Basically, they were making an excuse. They were claiming that they, as children, were paying for the sins that their parents committed. And God, through Ezekiel, tells the people of Israel's, Israel to stop blaming others for their own sin and shortcoming. It's interesting, many commentators suggest that the people were misusing uh, Exodus 20, verse 5, part of the Ten Commandments that says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. They were using that out of context. They failed to differentiate that this command is spoken specifically to those who hate me. So the iniquity of the fathers will be passed down to those who hate me. And then it's followed by a wonderful promise, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the point is this, that God will punish specifically those who reject him. Not those who, through faith, are committed to serving him. It's interesting that the prophet Jeremiah makes a similar point in chapter 31. He says, In those days they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So it's the exact same proverb. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats our grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. So he clarifies that. So here we have identified the principle of individual responsibility for sin, not blaming others. Ezekiel then proceeds to illustrate and elaborate upon this principle. Now, as you notice, there was a, a lot of content in verses 5 through verse 24, and we're not going to go into a lot of depth or detail. We are given, first of all, three examples. The first example is that of a righteous and just man. And he's described as one who doesn't worship idols, doesn't commit adultery, doesn't show uncleanliness, doesn't oppress others, is generous, and obeys God. So those are the characteristics. So that person will surely live, we are told. Then there's another example, and that is an evil son. He's described by contrasting characteristics, as one who is violent, as one who sheds blood and practices idolatry, one who commits adultery, 
who oppresses the poor and literally is an abomination in the sight of God. For that person, we're told, that particular son, he shall not live. And then, for good measure, there's a third example. This time it's a son who sees his father disobeying God, and yet he himself is righteous and just. Once again, first of all, the father's unrighteousness is listed, and I'm not going to give you that list again, but basically it's the same thing. And then the son's righteousness is contrasted to that. And the end result is this, that the son will surely live, while the father will certainly die for his iniquity. So that, again, shows and elaborates on the principle of individual responsibility. And then we see it all kind of coming together in verse 20, where it says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So again, punishment is where it is due. These three examples show that each person will be responsible for his or her own unique actions and decisions. So after these examples, Ezekiel elaborates a little bit on the principle, verses 19 through 24. And in verse 20, 21, he makes the point, God is fair and just. It's the people who have this whole idea mixed up. The people of Israel want to continue to blame others, to not take ownership of the sins that they are committing. And God points out to them that when an individual takes ownership of his or her sin and turns away from sin and turns toward God, none of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. So basically, it is telling us God longs for his people to turn from their wickedness and to pursue righteousness. In fact, in verse 23, we see God's heart revealed. It says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. That shows God's true heart, his true compassion. He wants everyone to make the right decision, to pursue righteousness, to respond in faith to Jesus as Savior. Then we see in the final paragraph, Ezekiel calls the people to repentance, which makes sense. He, he's saying, since you are the ones who have sinned, you need to own up to it. You need to address it, repent, and bring it to God, and God will forgive. Each is responsible. So when the people turn from their sin, 
he says they will have a new heart. They will have a new spirit. Repentance requires a drastic change of a person's heart. And such a change can only be accomplished through the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. Earlier in his book, Ezekiel speaks about this. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Highlighting God's amazing love and mercy. It comes shining through in that beautiful promise. It's interesting that those words, those exact words, are repeated again later in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. So it's a theme that keeps going through the entire book of Ezekiel. David, in speaking of a repentant heart and the change that's involved, says in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, as we know, ultimately, this prayer is answered in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In order for our hearts to be cleansed, in order for our sins to be forgiven, Jesus, as both human, representing our humanity, and divine, possessing the power that only God has, is the one and only way of salvation. He alone is the only solution to the problem of sin and disobedience. In Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, we read, Repent therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who is appointed to you, Jesus. That is what we focus on during this season of Lent. As we take ownership of our own sin, as we repent, as we return to God and seek forgiveness. Now sin so easily can reside on the inside of us, in our hearts. And then, perhaps later, come to the surface, creating pain and destruction. I brought with me this morning a tiny little vial. I had promised someone here that I would bring an object for the adults as well. I didn't bring my striped bag. But I did bring a little vial, and it has a tiny, tiny little piece of metal. It's about the size of the end of a pencil, the graphite end of a pencil. And there's a story behind this. 
When I was about 15 or 16 years old, I was helping my dad remove rivets from a sickle section of a wind rower that we had. <clears throat> and I had a metal chisel in my left hand, hammer in my right hand, and as I was hammering, a little piece, this piece, broke off of the end of the chisel, went through my leather glove, and embedded itself right into the side of my finger. So I was taken to the hospital, and x-rays were taken. And the doctor said that the metal was really close to a nerve that runs along the side of my finger. And so he said, we're just going to leave it. And then he explained that a lot of times that's the case with war veterans. If they have shrapnel, it'll stay in their body and it won't really cause any damage. Well, interestingly, 20 years later, as we were serving a church in North Carolina, and as I was on this workout schedule with a buddy of mine, he had a Bowflex machine, and as we were working out, I could feel something was happening to that little piece of metal. It started to hurt. It became irritated. And in fact, there was a bump that stuck out about half the size of a golf ball. And it was getting kind of warm, so I knew it was infected. And I thought, oh boy, <laughs> this isn't good. This could be very serious. So I went in. And sure enough, the doctor said, it has to come out. Gave me some local anesthetics, anesthesia, and then proceeded to take a scalpel and to remove that little piece of metal. So here it is. That tiny, tiny little piece of metal that I thought was hidden and embedded in my finger and I would never ever have to deal with it again. And it came to the surface. And I thought, you know, sin is like that. It really is. We think that it's hidden. We think that it's not really going to matter. It wasn't that big of a deal. But God knows it's there. Then it comes to the surface. And we have to deal with it. We need to realize that it's just going to become more and more serious. It will fester until we actually remove it. We know that in Jesus Christ, God will give us forgiveness. But it requires us to take ownership of our sin. We're familiar with 1 John chapter 1. I'd like to read that for you, beginning with verse 5. This is a message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin. But then he goes on to say, if 
We say that we have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beautiful, beautiful words that the Bible gives to us. As Christians, we're called to walk in the light of God's will. <clears throat> will. We're to avoid sin, although we admit we can't do that perfectly. But God said he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we turn to him in repentance. Now, walking in the light does not mean that, that we're free from sin, that it's completely gone. It means we're no longer slaves to sin. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 6. We are being more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So we turn to him for his cleansing and his righteousness. So I want to challenge you to take time this week to ponder with gratitude that great gift of salvation and to show through your words and your actions the difference that it makes to have Jesus as your Savior. Let's join together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we admit that when it comes to sin, it's much more convenient for us to either blame someone else or to make an excuse, to try perhaps to hide it. But like that little piece of metal, it is embedded within our hearts, but it will come to the surface. And Lord, it needs to be addressed or it will fester. Lord, as we come to terms, as we own up to our individual sins, may we also then lay claim to your promise that when we confess our sins, it is you who is faithful, that you will cleanse us and that you will give to us the righteousness that is in Christ as he takes upon himself our sins. Lord, we thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.